It's always good to be with you, and it's particularly so this morning. Uh, before we get into the passage, I'd like to just pause and pray again, uh, because these guys need prayer. Uh, not that they're they can experience problems, but whenever you're going out to do God's work, all kinds of challenges arise. So I'd like for us just to pause and pray again, and then ask the Lord to bless our time together as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this group of amazing young men and women. Thank you for the opportunity that they have to serve, and we ask that you would maximize that service. You know specific needs in the area of Philadelphia where they're going to be. We trust you as a sovereign God and as a loving Father that you will make the right connections in the right ways at the right time to accomplish your divine purposes Father, please keep them safe, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Father, help them to bond together. We ask that you would protect them from the evil one and his intentions. We thank you that you are greater than he is. Father, give Jim the wisdom and the patience that he's going to need over the next few days. And now, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you loved us enough to share the living word, Jesus Christ, so that we could be reconciled to you, but then also the written word, so that we could know you more intimately. So as we look into this passage this morning, Father, please accomplish your divine purposes. Share your word, your message, despite the speaker and his faults. You know them, they are many, but your grace and your mercy are greater. So we welcome your presence now and ask you to guide us through this passage, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Debbie and I have two sons. Uh, They are 38 and 35 now. But when they were young, uh, one of the joys that we had was that of reading to them. When they were really young, Debbie did it initially, but as they got older into elementary school, I kind of assumed it. I don't know if I took control or what, but I ended up doing it. And we, some of the most glorious memories I have are sitting on the couch in our home in Deerfield Beach, Florida, and going through books like the Chronicles of Narnia and some of Frank Peretti's books for kids. And Philip the Younger, he would sit in my lap, and he was very visual. He had to see everything. Uh, Micah the Older was more auditory. He'd sit on the side of the couch, and he would listen intently. And we read through all kinds of books, and it was a, a wonderful thing that we did every week. As they got older, as you can imagine, they entered into the teenage years. Those times were somewhat um, lessened. And the last book, when they got into middle school, the last book that we went through was The Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien. Anybody here read The Hobbit? Okay, we'll get back to that in a second. Everybody should have raised their hand, by the way. Um, So we read through that. And it was my first introduction to Tolkien. As as I was a teenager, my brothers uh, and friends had read it, and I just never got around to it. But uh, we we read The Hobbit. It was a great time. And then we stopped reading together. But then the movies, The Lord of the Rings, came out. And we went and saw them on the IMAX theater, which was huge. And the day after Thanksgiving, each year, we would go... Uh, to a movie, and those three movies we went and saw. And I ne- again, I never got around to reading uh, the books, but last February for my birthday, 
uh, Debbie and, and the boys and their uh, wives, got me this incredible commemorative set of uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit with artwork all from the original artwork of Tolkien. So in February, I started out uh, each night after dinner, we'd have the fireplace on, some music going, and started reading. And it was such a wonderful experience. And I finished it in, in May or so. And uh, it was just, it was, it was wonderful. And if you have not read the books or seen the movie, my question is, why not? I mean, come on. Uh, in my humble opinion, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings should be required reading, and Hobbit, required reading for all Christians. But if you're not familiar with the storyline, there are three components. One, there is this ring that was forged, and it has the ability to both inspire a lust for control and enable incredible levels of control and power. Second theme is that of the evil dark lord Moron. Not Moron, uh, Sauron. He was a Moron, but Sauron. Uh, he ruled over Mordor. So you combine Mordor and Sauron, you get Moron. But, uh, but he reigned in cruelty, and he wanted to expand his control by getting a hold of the ring. And so uh, the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, their quest is to get the ring to uh, Mount Doom and have it destroyed. And then the third theme is that of the reestablishment of the kingly line. Aragon is the king who is supposed to reign, and their family line has been uh, out of the picture for a while. And so the goal is to get him back on the throne. And uh, as you can guess, those first two things happen. The ring is destroyed. Uh, Sauron is, uh, is destroyed. And I really enjoy in the movie where Peter Jackson has this uh, incredible ultimate climactic scene where oppressiveness is coming out from uh, the royal city and throngs are lined on top of the precipice and, and the good wizard Gandalf is there and he places the crown on Aragon's brow and the crowd erupts and everyone's cheering and the launch, the inauguration of the good reign of the king is established. And recently it occurred to me, without that scene in the book or in the movie, the storyline would be worthless. Because the destruction of that which prompts and promotes and, and inspires control and greed and evil, and the destruction of the Lord of evil is not complete unless you have the installment of the righteous ruler, the good ruler. And when I read the, finished the book, and I saw this in the movies too, it occurred to me, I think Tolkien read the book of Revelation. Because you see these themes throughout his books. It is my opinion that what we're going to consider this morning is that ultimate climax, the culmination, not just of the book of Revelation, but of the whole Bible. Uh, go ahead and put the, the passage up, and we're going to read it, and then I'm going to pause on a, a certain uh, one of the passage. Uh, this is 21, starting verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from, uh, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he, God himself, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Go back to uh, the verse before, guys, where Jesus says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is the second time Jesus has said, it is done. The first time was where? On the cross. And on the cross, when he said it is finished, he has indicated that everything has been paid. It has all been accomplished. But that was the accomplishment of the payment for sin. This is now the completion of everything that he has set out to do. Everything that has happened all the way up through the book of Revelation points to this very point. This is the culmination and the climax. And what follows in the rest of 21 and 22 is the explanation of all that uh, is going to be involved in this glorious eternal state. Everything in the book comes to this point. And in my opinion, everything in the entire Bible comes to this point. Uh, Go back one more passage, guys. And this is where it comes in. Uh, now, the setting is, in the first verse, it says, the first couple of verses, says uh, the bride has been prepared. And, and this is a glorious setting. Uh, we've seen uh, the bride of Christ has been uh, prepared in chapter 19, but now the bride is being presented. So this is where the bride is coming. The celebration is about to begin. But in verse 5, he says, behold, I'm sorry, verse 3, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel God with us tradition throughout the book of the the entire Bible, all of the scriptures. Uh, Anybody here uh, on December 18th in December... I preached what I'm calling the first half of this passage, Emmanuel, God with us. And I, we don't have the time to go through the entire all over again. I'm going to encourage you, and this isn't vanity, this is for uh, the filling in of all the blanks. Go back, if, you've, if you weren't here, 
go back and watch uh, the video of that sermon presentation on December 18th because we talked about the reality of God with us, Emmanuel God with us. Uh, go ahead and, and uh, hit the next couple of slides, guys. Uh, in review, back uh, in December, we saw that when the angel made the proclamation to Matthew, uh, he quoted the passage from Isaiah 7 and said, uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in that, we saw the whole tradition throughout all Scripture of God with us in our deepest, darkest crises. Joseph was facing a crisis of being betrothed to uh, a young maiden who was pregnant. Israel was facing a crisis. They were uh, occupied by an enemy empire, and they had not heard from God for some 400 years. But the passage goes back to King Ahaz, who was facing a crisis of a pending invasion. But it all goes back much earlier in, with Moses in the burning bush. God said, don't be afraid, I will be with you. With Joshua, as he's about to enter into the promised land, he said, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you. Uh, throughout the scripture, you see over and over again these, these, or these proclamations to various servants. Uh, with Gideon, before he had to take on these entire uh, armies, uh, God said, do not be afraid, I am with you. Jehoshaphat, the same thing. So there is without, uh, throughout Scripture this promise and this reality of God being with his people in the deepest, darkest crises. And I would just like to interject this morning. There is no crisis that you can face that is insurmountable if you're with God. Because if you are following the Lord, God is with you. The resolution of your crisis is not dependent upon other people or circumstances. The resolution of any crisis that you may face is found in the person and the work of Christ and the reality of God with us. But the second point we covered uh, six months ago, seven months ago, was God with us to meet our deepest need. In that passage in Matthew, it says, you shall call his, uh, make his name Jesus because he will save his people from sins. And our deepest need, that which separates us, that which prevents God being with us, has been our sin from the very beginning, going back to Genesis 3. And God knew that in order for him to dwell with us, that sin had to be atoned for. And that's why Christ came and offered himself as a sacrifice. And in Hebrews, throughout, you see this picture of Jesus as not only the sacrifice, but the high priest presenting his sacrifice to the Father so that we could be reunited with him. But then the third is this idea of God with us to accomplish his eternal plan. And that comes now to what we're looking at this morning, the culmination of God with us. And let's go back to that verse. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That whole concept of God with us, or God dwelling with his people, is rich in the Jewish history. It goes back, and you'll see in your bulletin the, the 
uh, outline. It goes all the way back to the garden. In chapter 3, we see this picture of God who was with Adam and Eve up until their disobeying him and breaking that fellowship. And in order to reestablish that relationship, go ahead and hit the next slide, guys. You see the reality of God with us in the Exodus. As the people of Israel are leaving Egypt, the manifestation of God is him coming in a pillar of fire and cloud and protecting them from the attacking Egyptian armor, armor, uh, army and then destroying the Egyptian army. And then he descended upon Mount Sinai in the giving of the uh, Ten Commandments and all the law. But then he commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. And in the, the promises and in the, the directives, he said, a dwelling place where I can dwell with my people and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so we see the, the information of, of Moses fulfilling God's plan, them building the tabernacle, and upon the completion of that building, we see that image of the pillar of cloud and fire descending upon the Holy of Holies and resting over the altar of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And God was with his people in a very visible physical form. Upon the completion of the temple, we see the same thing. As soon as it's uh, completed, that pillar of fire, the manifestation of God, descends upon the Holy of Holies and rests over the Ark of the Covenant. And the nation of Israel had this very real demonstration of God being with them in a tangible way. But in Ezekiel, because of hundreds of years of vacillating and oscillating, going back and forth and disobeying God, in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, we see the tragic imagery of the glory of God ascending, not descending, but ascending from above the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and over the temple and to the temple walls and then outside the temple and away from the nation of Israel. And for the very first time in the history of Israel, God was not with them. But towards the end of the book of Ezekiel, we have this incredible blessing. Chapter 37, verse 27. This is the chapter that talks about the dry bones, the valley of dry bones, and God bringing the bones back to life. And towards the end of the chapter, this gem is inserted. It says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And if you compare that to Revelation 21, verse 3, it's essentially the same phrase. And then we see uh, about uh, 600 years after the writing of, of these verses, the introduction of Jesus. So after the Lord departs, we see the Lord returning to be his people. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's that con- that, the Greek translation for that dwelling place. He dwelt or he tabernacled with us, and we beheld his glory. So In a whole new way, the glory of God descended upon earth 
in the person of Jesus. And Jesus was with us again. God was with us again. And at the end of Matthew, we saw the, the promise uh, after he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you. And then in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming into believers and being with them. And in Ephesians, we see the imagery uh, at the end of chapter 2, the imagery, excuse me, guys, the imagery of the temple, the church being the temple, and God dwelling with his people in that temple format of the church. But now we have this reality of God with us forever that at this point, after all of the evil that has been destroyed in the book of Revelation, after all of these events, we see the culmination of the reality of God with us. And again, this is face-to-face, in personal form, not figurative, not spiritual, but in personal form. And everything that happens in 21 and 22 harkens all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So now let's look at the eternal impact of God with us. First, the absence of all pain, sorrow, and horror. The verse says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When the reality of God with us is instituted, all horror, all pain, all sorrow, all death will be destroyed, eliminated. As we said back in December, I'm confident there are plenty in this room that have had more than their fair share of horror. There are those who have experienced evil. Every tear shed in sorrow, in mourning, is connected to somebody's wrongdoing, even if it's physical death. It goes back to Adam and Eve's wrongdoing. Our society is overwhelmed with darkness. Uh, I, if you read in the bulletin, you see I'm a chaplain for first responders. Uh, and let me just plug in. I get what's happening with Peter. Uh, I've had very much the same kind of, of calling, uh, leading from the Lord. After 30-plus uh, years in pastoral ministry, uh, we... I have committed, we, Debbie and I have committed as uh, our mission to know and love God as much as is absolutely possible and help as many people as possible to do the same. And we've embraced the Matthew 9 where Jesus said he saw uh, the people, they were like sheep without a shepherd, cast down and harassed, and therefore uh, pray that the Lord of harvest would send workers out into the harvest. And we realized uh, eight years ago that God was leading us into this ministry of first responders because they are cast down and harassed, and they are 
uh, overwhelmed with horrors. But in that, I started teaching class with the uh, police academy uh, up uh, upstate uh, Meriden on moral injury or soul trauma. Soul trauma is whenever a person experiences uh, either they participate in or they witness or they are victims of something that is an extreme violation of their moral code. And it's not uncommon for civilians to, to experience this, but with uh, police officers, it goes back to the military, but with police officers, when they deal with a child uh, that has been uh, sexually abused or uh, homicide of a child, uh, or as with Bristol, the ambush of the two officers, those are extreme violations of a moral code. And it takes a trauma, not just on the body or the emotions, but on the soul. Uh, nobody in my line of work wants to get a call after midnight uh, because nobody calls after midnight to see how you're doing. Uh, but on October 13th, uh, I got a call at 143 from uh, Trooper First Class Rodney uh, Valdez, who, uh, when I picked up the phone, he said, uh, Rev, they call me Rev, instead of Reverend Rebel, it's Rev. He said, Rev, we've had uh, two officers shot and killed in Bristol and a third has been injured, and he's on the way to the hospital. Can you go to Bristol? And at 1.43 in the morning, my mind is not totally clear, and I asked him to repeat it. And he said, yes, uh, two officers have been ambushed and killed, and one is on the way to the hospital. And I made my way to Bristol and was with them for the next uh, 10 days or so and oversaw the funeral of those two brave uh, officers. And that is, it was and it is right now, an uh, essential illustration of this, this notion of moral injury, uh, soul trauma, because evil has gotten the upper hand. And when that happens, it does something to the inner soul. There are folks in this room who've experienced soul trauma being abused by somebody, being verbally attacked by somebody that you love, be abandoned by somebody you love. And it doesn't have to be soul trauma. It can be the loss of someone that you love deeply. Those are the kinds of things that result in death, physically and spiritually and emotionally. But the reality of God with us is that when that time comes, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more darkness. There will be absolute, total, whole healing. And if you have suffered or are suffering, from the darkness that surrounds us related to the moral decay of our society. If you have been injured by someone who has done something cruel, if you have lost a loved one, the reality of this ultimate fulfillment of God with us is that there will be no more tears. Death, as we've seen in the last chapter, has been cast into the lake of fire. There's no more mourning. There's no more pain. 
Because the ultimate fulfillment of God with us is the elimination of all of those things. A second eternal impact, the eternal quenching of thirst. Uh, the, uh, the commentators go back and forth on what this means. It is, uh, well, let's read it. He seated on, seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, write this down, for these words are absolutely faithworthy and true. Uh, at the end of it, he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Springs of water provide refreshing. They provide life. And so the consensus with all the commentaries is that this is both this desire to be refreshed from all of the hardships, but there's also this, this sense of life. And some have suggested that this may even be a picture of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is we're all dying of thirst. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? When uh, I was right out of high school, before going into college, I had the incredible blessing of working as a laborer for brick and block masons. This was in Miami, where over the summertime, the temperature would be 99 and the humidity would be 99. There were times when I was thirsty. And I would keep a couple of quarts of Gatorade in the ice chest. And there were more, more than one occasion I consumed both of those. Because when you're hot, when you're thirsty, you want cool, refreshing. Uh, I was born in Central Florida. I uh, spent a lot of time growing up there. And one of my favorite experiences growing up was going to the natural springs in Central Florida. Anybody been to any of the springs in Central Florida? Uh, Silver Springs, uh, some of the springs, okay. You may get a sense of, go ahead and hit the next slide. Uh, as a child, we went to uh, Silver Springs, the glass bottom boats, and we, 25, 30 feet down, you see these catfish. They look like they're 10 foot long. Uh, they're not. Uh, and Blue Springs when I was a child, but my favorite of all is Alexander Springs, nestled in the heart of the Ocala National Forest. And it's not as big and popular as some of them, but this, I have been on the beach side that you see there and looked all the way across to the trees and with a mask on, you can see all the way across, probably uh, 50 yards, and you can see bass on the other side that look like they're this big. Now, if you're not a fisherman, that doesn't make much difference to you, but if you like to fish, the only frustration is if you can see them, they can see you. But that spring pushes out 52,000 gallons of water every minute at a constant temperature of 72 degrees. And when it's 95 degrees outside, in South Florida, you go to the beach when it's 99, and the water's going to be 98, 99. I saw the other day that it had gotten up to 101. That's not cool and refreshing. But when it's 99 degrees outside and you go into 72 degrees, it's like, and the water comes out of what's called the boil. The next slide is a, a picture of what that boil looks like. It's about 25 foot down, and there are multiple little crevices where the water is gushing forth. The next slide may be, on one occasion, uh, Debbie and I went to, uh, to the, the springs with, I took my, uh, my scuba gear, and a buddy of mine, uh, we dove down. And I went down 25 feet, 
and I got to one of these crevices where the water is coursing out, I took the regulator out of my mouth, I opened my mouth in front of one of those uh, outlets, and I just started to drink. It was so good. And I put my regulator back in and breathed a little bit and then opened my mouth some more, because it's pure, it's cool, it's refreshing. And the water boils out to the top, and the next slide shows it goes down this river, and on e crystal clear all the way, on either side of the river, you see wildlife, and it is feeding, and it is supplying. And that's the imagery in a couple of weeks you'll see in chapter 22. It talks about the river of life flowing from the throne. Uh, so this spring gushes forth, and it flows out in a river. And that kind of refreshing and life-giving sustenance is going to be available to all who are blessed to dwell with God and have God dwell with us. But the third eternal impact, it's not just the removal of all uh, pain, sorrow, and, and horror, and it's not just the eternal quenching, but is the reality of an eternal, perfect relationship with the Father. Look at the passage. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the imagery of those who get to this point, those who go through all of the stuff and remain faithful. There is this imagery of God dwelling with his children in perfect harmony. None of us have experienced perfect harmony with parents. Some of us have good experience with parents, but there's always something. Parents are flawed. Now, as a child of a, uh, in a household, we come to understand that our parents are flawed, and we're more than happy to tell our parents that they're flawed. But as parents, we come to realize, yeah, I'm flawed. And so there's no such thing as a perfect relationship between parent and child here on earth. But there can be snippets. I mentioned some of my favorite memories reading to uh, our boys, another favorite memory is taking them fishing. Going on the side of the bank in South Florida and getting them so that they tossed out the bobber and caught brim. And, uh, and growing up, uh, we would do that. Uh, from time to time as a family, we'd go fishing. One of my favorite memories as an adult now is my boys taking me fishing. For my 60th birthday, they came into town and we went up to uh, New Hartford and fished on the Farmington River for a couple of days and caught trout. And it was a glorious, glorious experience. In fact, I texted them the other day the uh, imagery of the, uh, the river of life flowing out. I said, I wonder what the fishing is going to be like on the, the river coming out from the throne in Revelation 22. And they said, can't wait to find out. If you have had a good experience with your father, 
And I've come to the conclusion that so many of the ills that we have in society relate to struggles between children and their fathers. But if you've had a good relationship with your father, realize that the time is coming where that experience is going to be expanded in ways we could never possibly imagine. If you have painful memories related to your father, understand that when we experience God with us in its purest form, it will be eternal bliss. This is the promise. The whole history, the biblical history of the tradition of God with us, culminates in this reality that we, as his children, will live with him for eternity in the ultimate, even unimaginable level of bliss that comes from being with the Father the way he designed it to be. The time is coming for those who are faithful and follow him where all of the pain, the sorrow, the agony, the horror, all of the evil and the results of evil that have occurred will be erased and eliminated. We will be drinking from the purest spring of living water and being refreshed by it for all eternity. And we will be living in a house with our Heavenly Father, that is perfect, where there are no hindrances of any kind to a loving, intimate relationship with the Father. What about those who are excluded from God with us? The passage says, but as for the, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I need to hasten that this is not suggesting that if a person has been guilty of one of these at some point in their life, they're exempted. If that were the case, then, then I'm hopeless. This isn't a picture of someone who's lived a perfect life, because nobody can do this. This is a picture of those who have rejected the authority of God. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse uh, 6, I believe it says, is, uh, 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 it is impossible uh, to please God without faith. Uh, so, but if someone uh, wants to uh, draw near to God, he must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, believing that God exists isn't just believing that there is some level, some force out there. It's believing that he exists as God, as God the creator, the king, the sovereign, the one who has the absolute right to rule over everyone. So believing in him in that sense and wanting to draw near to him. This picture of heavenly bliss is for those who desire to be with him and have demonstrated that here on earth. Those who don't desire it, he's not going to force them. Uh, the whole imagery of king and kingship. Uh, this is a picture of the king who has conquered and is about to reign. The kingdom of God is reserved for those who acknowledge, recognize, and acknowledge, and bow down to and submit to the king. Uh, 
those who do not want to submit to the king, they are choosing an alternative. And this is that alternative. An eternity without God in this lake that's called the second death. If you're looking for a big idea this morning to summarize, it's this. God will, in all caps, accomplish his eternal plan to be with his people. For the faithless, the results will be absolutely unimaginable. For the faithless, the consequences will be absolutely unimaginable. I'll say it again if you want to write it down. God will accomplish his eternal purpose to be with his people. For the faithful, the benefits, the results are absolutely unimaginable. But for the faithless, the consequences are unimaginable. Okay, a couple of points of application before we transition. First, if you have surrendered your life to the king, hold on. The horrors that we are facing now will cease. His promise will be fulfilled. This is not our permanent state. This is the in-between. This is, several times in the scriptures, uh, it says, uh, in a little while. Seems like it's more than a little while, but this is the little while before the, the Lord's return. So this is not a permanent state. It will cease, and this all will happen. So hold on. Second point, if you have not surrendered your life to the king, why not now? As we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, he gives every opportunity for people to turn to him. And there is no good reason not to turn to him. The whole point of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was so that we could be restored to that right relationship. And I'm going to invite the praise team and the elders to come forward and prepare for our time of communion this morning. But this is all about, and this goes back to uh, the God with us to accomplish our greatest need. Jesus' death on the cross was so that our payment for sin could be made because none of us could ever make that payment. None of us is able to sufficiently pay the price for our sins. Only Jesus could do that. But he did it willingly. And we're told in Scripture that anyone who places, in, earlier in the, uh, the praise segment, uh, Ephesians was up there, for by grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God has made it possible for us to experience right now his dwelling with us through the Holy Spirit. But that's just to hold us over. We're told in Ephesians that he has sealed us in the Holy Spirit so that the day will come where we will be with him face to face, just like in the garden, just like in paradise, the way God designed it to be. 
if you would like to learn more about that, the elders will be around after, and there will be folks around. Find one of us, and we'll be glad to explain more of what that means and how to take that step of faith in trusting and following the Lord. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to invite people to come forward and receive the elements, but I'm going to ask that you take them back to your seat, open it up, uh, and get the wafer ready. But once everybody has come, and taking their elements back to the seat, we're going to partake together because there's another passage that I'd like to read and put it all in context. If you have not placed your faith in the Lord, if you've not said, yes, I want to be with him, I want him to dwell with me, then we would invite you to not partake because these elements are for those who have placed their faith, who have committed their lives to the, to the Lord. Uh, so, uh, if you have not, then we invite you to, to uh, abstain this morning. But if you have, this is an opportunity for us to celebrate what he's done for us, but also what's ahead. So as you are ready, please come forward and receive the elements, and then we will partake together.